Good morning. My name is Monica Finnefrock. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 16 from the New Living Translation. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child. Though she was barren and was too old, she believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. That was Monica Finnefrock. Her husband will be sharing the word with us today. I'm excited to introduce Jake to the church and to you this morning. Uh, Jake and Monica, their family have been in China uh, with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And um, our church made recently a decision to come on board and be uh, part of their lives. And they've been with us since June. And it's been really good for the Sung family and the Finnefrocks to be getting together and getting to know each other better. They've been such a blessing to us. And uh, Jake was one of the speakers at our recent men's retreat. And he told a great story about how he kicked a knife. So be sure to ask him about that because it'll embarrass him. And that's what we want to do. Um, so, Jake, come on up and share Hebrews 11 with us today. Good morning. Like Peter said, my name is Jake, and I am not one of the pastors here at Evergreen. But we have been attending here since 
June, and we have really felt like Evergreen has been a great place for our family uh, to come and to worship, to grow, to be nourished. And uh, we do have a little bit of history here. Those of you that know the Selvig family, I have to tell a little, little secret here. Uh, Joan Selvig was my mother's uh, childhood best friend. They went to first grade, uh, I think through sixth grade. And Joan, I don't know if you were here now or you were here at the first service, but um, that's one of the reasons we decided to come here when we first moved to Mercer Island. And we felt very nourished and cared for and like this has, has become our home in a very short period of time. So I do have to warn you, though, if you're new to the church, that you might want to keep your distance from Peter, otherwise you'll be up here speaking for him you know, pretty soon. So he's much like Tom Sawyer in that way, putting, putting his friends to work. So we've been studying Hebrews as, as a church. Uh, it's been a series that's been going on. This is the 11th message in the book of Hebrews. And the focus of this series is basically how to bear witness to Christ in our culture. The idea of that is that um, those of us who are Christians have come to know Christ and we've been transformed by uh, his influence in our lives. And the challenge then before us is to bear witness to him in a culture that doesn't know how to relate to him, doesn't know who he is, and might even be frightened of what they see in Christianity or in Christians. And uh, so we're, we're challenged. Sometimes we want to withdraw and just be amongst ourselves and not interact with the world because it's, it's a little bit awkward and difficult. We don't know how to relate. And then there are others who might be Christians, but um, they don't want to identify with Christianity. And so they enter into culture and they just kind of float along and are very much influenced by culture and are really not bearing witness to Christ. They might be living out light, but they're not pointing people towards Christ. So we want to be people who are deeply rooted in and connected to Christ, and at the same time living out a relevant witness to him in our culture, whether it be our workplace or our social circles or our families that might not know him. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I want you to be thinking about this issue, how you live out your witness in, faith, in, in the world. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I would just invite you to enter into this, this uh, dialogue, this conversation with us, and, um, and just be open to, to maybe what, uh, what we're talking about here today and how it might influence you and maybe your view of Christians or Christianity. So today we're going to take kind of a broad look at, at this idea of, of Hebrews chapter 11. It's a huge chapter in terms of content. And we're going to take a, a brief overview, and then we're going to focus in very narrowly on one passage and one character in this chapter. And then we're going to zoom back out and kind of have a broad application. So I hope that uh, you're able to follow along and that I don't skip too fast and that the zooming in and zooming out doesn't make you dizzy. Hebrews chapter 11. As we, as we look at Hebrews and the previous things that we have studied, we've seen that this is a book that's written to a church that's in flux, a church that is in the midst of a culture um, that either de denies or rejects Jesus, um, a church that came out of 
thousands of years of, of tradition, the Hebrew tradition, that had very strict uh, religious practice, strict norms. And here Jesus had come in and entered into history, and people had interacted with him. Some of them had seen him. Some of them had been transformed by other people that had seen him, like the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys. And now the Hebrew people were trying to figure out who they were. Some of them were in the midst of an identity crisis. Were they, were they Jews? Were they, were they a part of this system of the temple surrounding, uh, and, and this culture built up surrounding the temple in Jerusalem? Or were they something else? And so they're, they're in, this, in this flux, in transition. They're not really knowing who they are. And so the author wants to remind them who God is, what he's been doing in history, and how they can be uh, relating to him. One of the things that uh, Peter has shared in this study is that there are many ways that God has revealed himself over time to people. Uh, one is through creation. Another is through uh, circumstances that they're in. Another is through the law. And yet another is through people. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to see how God revealed himself to many people and how their faith in him transformed them and how God pro progressively has revealed himself to us today through some of these people. So today the focus is going to be on people in Hebrews chapter 11. One of the last questions that they were asking is, uh, the, these people that were receiving this letter, is who is Jesus and how we relate to him? And this is a question that I think is extremely relevant for us today, for those of us who are Christians and those of, of us who might not be yet. Who is Jesus and what does he have to do with us and how do we relate to him? Many of you know that 1 Corinthians is called the love chapter. Have you heard that? And Hebrews 11 is a special chapter as well. It has its own kind of nickname or its own moniker. Do you, know, do you know what that is? What is Hebrews chapter 11? If you paid attention to the scripture reading this morning, I hope it stood out to you. What is it? It's the faith chapter. Okay, this is something that I first came across uh, when I was a, a young Christian and a relatively younger man. Um, I was in Tijuana, Mexico, living down there and working in a ministry. We did uh, house building for the urban poor. And I was new to the faith relatively. I had grown up in a Christian home, even a covenant church, and even had been confirmed in a covenant church. But uh, in my early 20s is when I, I committed my life to follow Christ. I had come into contact with his truth and had been my life turned upside down. I felt radically transformed, and I ended up working with a ministry that worked among the urban poor in Tijuana, and we built homes uh, for people in the, in the countryside. So I would go down for a week or two at a time from San Diego, work all week, come back, uh, be extremely dirty. I had long hair, stubble, a bandana sometimes. I'm not sure why. And so I was driving back into San Diego in a 19... 76 Suburban that was falling apart. It looked like a, a drug dealer's car. And I get to the borderline, and the, the border guard uh, comes up to the, to the window, a big, massive guy, and he puts his hand on the window, and he sees me and my buddy and, and says, so what are you guys doing down in Tijuana? Of course, there's 
if you know Tijuana, there's all kinds of terrible things that could be happening. And so, full of the love of God, I said, well, we're, we're missionaries. We're doing mission work down there. And he said, oh, really? Wow, okay. Do you mind if I ask you a couple questions about that? I said, sure, go ahead. And he said, uh, can you tell me, what, what's John 3.16? And I froze. I had no idea. I knew God was in it, so I just said, God. And then there was silence. So my friend who was in the front seat just started laughing at me. And he said, for God. And so I, so I, got, I got through John 3.16. That's right. It starts with four. It doesn't start with God. So I got through that. And then the guy asked me, he said, well, so now can you say it in Spanish since you're you're a missionary, you're working down there. And I had never memorized it in Spanish, but I, I did speak Spanish, and so I kind of got through it. I gave him the gist of it. He said, oh, okay, not bad. And then he said, um, so what's the faith chapter? And I had no idea what the faith chapter was. Of course, I had read it, but I'd never heard it called that, right? And my friend said, you know, it's Hebrews chapter 11. I said, yeah, what he said, Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> And he's got, he said, I have one more for you. He said, what island was John on when he received his revelation? So this guy obviously was a believer. And he'd probably heard other people say that they were down in Mexico helping out, but they had, their car was stashed full of other things. So he wanted to test us. So it pays to know your Bible trivia. <laughs> so Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. What is faith and what does it do for us? Those are questions that are important to us. You hear this this word faith used quite a bit in our culture. What is it? The body of Hebrews 11 is really a continuation of a line of reasoning that initiates at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. You know, in the way that we have the Bible today, uh, it wasn't written with those chapter and verse numbers. And so we've kind of chunked it up to make it more accessible to find different parts. But this line of reasoning starts in Hebrews chapter 10. In that section... The author reminds the readers that when they came to believe in Jesus, the promised Messiah of the Hebrew people, they were ridiculed, some were tortured, others were ostracized or thrown into prison because of their confident trust in him. Yet they endured with joy because of their passion for what they had found in Jesus. In the last verse of chapter 10, the readers are encouraged to continue to be faithful, to pursue God, and not to turn away to their own destruction. Safety, salvation, and God's promises are there at the end of a journey following earnestly after God. He reminds them that they're doing this because they are by nature faithful people. So then Hebrews 11 starts, and you can see here on the screen, this is a word cloud. It's called a stemmed word cloud because uh, I put in Hebrews chapter 11 into this software and it takes all of the words there and all of the related stems of those words and it shows us which words are the most important words that come out of this, uh, this passage. So the words that are in larger font are going to be the words that are used most in this passage. So we see words like faith and God. Those are in the, in the largest font and those uh, are both used 27 times in Hebrews chapter 11. Then we have other words like people. Obviously, we can relate to this. Uh, promised, received. Uh, and then we have some, uh, some people's names up there. And then all kinds of other smaller words that are used once or twice. It's fascinating to look at, 
at a chapter of the Bible in this format. Because it, it, you know, I knew that Hebrews 11 was the faith chapter, but I wanted to make sure, so I put it through this. And sure enough, it came out that faith is an important concept here. So what is faith, and what does it mean to us? Hebrews 11, chapter 1, gives us a working definition of faith that can be applied to the rest of the chapter, and really the way that we think about faith as Christians. Often this word is used... um, in other ways in our culture. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, the author is defining what he's talking about when he's using this word faith. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things that we cannot see. So this is the faith that he's referring to when he says, by faith, Abel did such and such. By faith, Moses did these things. Okay, it's a confidence in God's promises that the things that God tells them through these different forms of revelation will actually take place. So this isn't wishful thinking or dreaming about wizards and fairies. Okay? This, is, this is a confidence that comes from an interaction with God, an experience of God, and being able to trust in his promises. Speaking personally, as a natural skeptic, in my own life, I was so shaken by a supernatural encounter with the truth of Jesus, and so aware of my own smallness and my own sinfulness, that I had no other option but to follow after Jesus as a young adult. It was, my, it was the only thing that I was hopeful for. And I didn't really know how to do it, even though I had grown up in a covenant church. So with every step of trust and obedience, kind of shakily at first, I would put into practice things that I saw in the Bible that were kind of were promises, Um, things like trying to uh, to love an enemy, or bless somebody when they're they're cursing at me. Things that are counterintuitive and difficult to do in that moment of of floodedness when you when you're angry and you just want to fight back. These are maybe small things, uh, but I would put my my foot out on that promise and realize that, wow, this holds up. This is true. And so in this journey of faith, began to take more and more steps in confidence. If we look at this word cloud again, we'll see some names there. And the two largest names in the word cloud are Isaac and Abraham. So I've chosen to narrow down this huge chapter and focus on a passage where Abraham is in there because uh, he and Isaac seem to be not only central to uh, part of the argument here in Hebrews chapter 11, but also to the entire uh, Hebrew scriptures. Abraham was the first Hebrew. He was the one that God made a covenant with and that God had chosen, for whatever reason, that was up to God, uh, to do something in our world through. So we'll look a little bit at, at Abraham. His name was Abram to start out with. He grew up in a place called Ur, a city called Ur, in a, in a region of the earth called Mesopotamia, or the, the middle land in between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, which is now present-day Iraq. And God had some interaction with him and promised that he would give him a son. Abram, at that time, was in his 70s. He didn't have a son. 
His wife uh, was barren. She was not able to have children, which would have been sort of a curse um, in that culture, in that society. And so they were a little bit skeptical about it, I think. This passage is recounted in Genesis chapter 12, and much of Abram's life is there between 12 and, and the early 20s of Genesis, and it's worthwhile reading. He was not really like this great guy. If you read about his life, you might be confused as to why he's sort of a hero, why God would have chosen him, which just gives me all that more encouragement that as God has chosen me, um, my blemishes and my shortcomings are, are natural. That's part of the human experience. But Abram was very much a blemished person. God promised him that he would give him a son and that through that son, he would make a great nation and that his descendants would outnumber the stars of the sky. And that through that nation, he would one day bless all of the nations, all of the people, languages, tribes, and tongue of the world. And this is the, this is the plan. This is the, the plan in history that God is working out, even in our current day. So God asked Abram to leave Ur and move to this place called Canaan. It was going to be the land that he would inherit, and, and God had promised it to him. So we're going to look right now at a passage that wasn't in the scripture reading. It's in the section immediately following the scripture reading. The scriptures say it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. So I'm going to stop and let that sink in a a little bit. This is a story in the Bible, this holy book that we esteem about human sacrifice. Really? (laughs) Doesn't that seem bizarre? I mean, to me, I actually feel uncomfortable about this story. When When I read it, it just seems weird. Is that what God wants us to do? What if he asked me to do that? And some of the narrative I've heard growing up in the church is that, you know, well, you know, Abraham, he was, he was willing to sacrifice his own son as if that's kind of a normal thing to do, right? And it feels awkward to me and it feels a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know how you feel about it. If you're, if you're a, a Christian here today and you've heard this story, maybe you're like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, that's what God did. But if you're not, you're, you're, you're running for the exits in your mind at least. I don't see anybody leaving right now, but you might think this is just craziness. If that happened in our society today, we'd lock that person up, right? If they, if they shared it openly. Yeah, God came to me and told me that I needed to sacrifice my son. So what do we do with this story? How do we interact with it? If we stop and think about it and monitor our emotions, it becomes unsettling. And we might even say, do we, do we even have to talk about this? Is God demented? You know, in a dating relationship, sometimes there's a family member that you don't want your, your fiancé or your girlfriend or whatever to know about, right? It's, it's kind of that weird uncle, and you're going to wait until after you're married to tell her about it. And You know, this is kind of one of those stories as a Christian. I'm like, wow, do we have to talk about this? Does it have to be open? But do you guys remember Peter referring to God as a missionary God? 
in one of his earlier messages. The Bible gives accounts of times in history where God enters into our human contexts and meets us where we are and holds our hand and then takes us one step closer to his ideal. And this is what's happening with the story of Abram. And at this point in time, when this happens in Genesis chapter 22, his name had been changed from Abram to Abraham. And you see, he lived in a cultural context that accepted human sacrifice as a normal expression of religious practice. That's what people did. They were afraid of their concept of God. This isn't the God of the Bible that we know of yet. They were afraid. And so they would sacrifice other humans to appease gods. And this didn't just happen where Abram lived. This was happening in the Americas at the very same time in human history. This was the general practice of of religion at the time. And so when we read it today, we might think it's a crazy story, but what God is doing here is he's entering into Abram's world and he's saying, I'm going to introduce you to myself. I'm going to be your God. And Abram's thinking, okay, well, so that probably involves some sort of blessing, but some sort of probably human sacrifice, right? And it turns out that in that area, Uh, where Abraham lived, that was a hotbed of human sacrifice. And we're just finding out more uh, in, in our present day about how much of a hotbed it really was. I'm going to read to you uh, from an article in the New York Times just published last year. A new examination of skulls from the Royal Cemetery at Ur. This is Abram's hometown. Discovered in Iraq almost a century ago, appears to support a more grisly interpretation than before of human sacrifices associated with elite burials in ancient Mesopotamia, archaeologists say. Palace attendants, as part of a royal mortuary ritual, were not dosed with poison to meet a rather serene death. Instead, a sharp instrument, a pike perhaps, was driven into their heads. Archaeologists at the University of Pennsylvania reached that conclusion after conducting the first CT scans of two skulls from the 4,500-year-old cemetery. The cemetery with 16 tombs, grand in construction, and rich in gold and jewels was discovered in the 1920s. A sensation in 20th century archaeology, it revealed the splendor at the height of the Mesopotamian civilization. The recovery of about 2,000 burials attested to the practice of human sacrifice on a large scale. So here, this is Abram's hometown. This is how people did religion back then. Human sacrifice. And in that particular practice, this article goes on to say, after the king died, then everybody else was executed, kind of, you know, sacrificed, um, and buried along with the king and all of his jewels. So, not only there, but God, God promises and to send Abram to a new place, and he's sent out to the land of Canaan, right? And the predominant society at that point in time in that part of the world was the Phoenician society, or Phoenician culture. And Phoenicians were seagoers, and they have settlements all along the Mediterranean Sea, especially in North Africa. And the Phoenicians took sacrifice to another level, Archaeologists and historians are now finding that the Phoenicians were the world's experts in child sacrifice. So Abram goes from a place where um, mass 
human sacrifice of, of the king and his, or the king's attendants is acceptable to a place where now child sacrifice is acceptable. And it's the practice of the day. That's how people do religion. In that part of the world, there's a god that people worship called Molech. And Molech was a bronze statue of human form with arms outstretched and the head of a bull. And how they would worship Molech is they would heat him up with fire until he was red hot. And then they would lay infants on his smoldering arms as a form of sacrifice. And it was the firstborn child that they would put in his arms in hopes that they would become more fertile or it would appease him. So... For God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, it's kind of like asking you know, somebody in Seattle to put a 12 flag up in their yard or something like that, right? You know, it's just something that the culture is doing. People accept that as something that's, that's kind of normal. And so um, Abraham was willing to do that. And he said, I, you know, I don't really know how this works, and so, but God, you appeared to me and you gave me this promise, and so I, I'll, I'll do, I'll, this is a step of faith. And he goes and he prepares to offer Isaac as a sacrifice and God says, hey, wait, I'm not that kind of God. Your perception is that this is what God's require of you, but that's not what I want to do. And oftentimes in our small ability to understand the the massive expanse of God, we we kind of humanize him and and use human language to describe what, what he's doing and what he's done. And I can see God in heaven kind of, uh, kind of looking down at, at human history and what's happening at that point in time and saying, this isn't, this isn't what I want. This is good. The, the creation, the people that I have made in my image, they're killing themselves because they want to please me. And so I'm going to enter into to history and I'm going to show them what I really want. And so he starts with Abram and he offers a substitutionary atonement, this ram. And he says, go get that ram and sacrifice that. It's just kind of one step closer to what God actually wants to do. Not that he's so concerned about sacrifice, but it helped Abram understand that, okay, this is a different kind of God. He's not asking me to sacrifice my son like all the other gods do. He's different. And so then we see in Hebrews chapter 11 these other stories, these people of faith that uh, followed Abraham and gave us more of an understanding of what God was doing. And ultimately, uh, this Climax is in the life of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' life, we have God himself becoming the sacrifice. So no longer is it humans or children or rams or bulls, but it's God himself offering himself as the sacrifice. And so this is why he's a missionary God. He enters into this cultural context of Abraham and then brings him and his descendants to a new understanding of who he is. If we can uh, look up here at the board, how many of you are thinking of Pink Floyd right now? Anybody? Okay. All right. If you're not, uh, you can ask me afterwards why I said that, and I'll explain it to you. But up on the board, we have uh, a beam of white light entering into a triangular prism. And within that prism, you see that light diffusing and moving out, and the colors of the spectrum are coming to light. And then that light is exiting the prism and becoming a full-blown spectrum of beautiful colors. And if we think about the course of human history and what God is doing, I want you to kind of use this as an analogy. Obviously, it's not perfect in, um, in its representation of what God has done. But if you think about the story of, of Abram, This came prior to Christ, 
And in the, in the section where, where there's the beam of white light, that's where this took place. Okay? And then you have the prism of, of Jesus, right? Of his life and the full revelation of God. Peter, can we go back to that slide? Um, and, um, and then coming out on the other side is the 2,000 years of history up until now, where people have experienced the reality of what God has done by his substitutionary atonement, his paying for our sins and being himself the sacrifice. And we've lived now, and we do live, in a culture that has been tremendously transformed and changed because of Christ's life, of Jesus' life and, and what he's done on our behalf. And so our concept of how the world should work has been radically transformed by the life of Jesus. It's kind of like disruptive technology, right? How many of you want to go back to, to landlines and, and, uh, or telegrams, right? You know, we have smartphones now, and so we see the world in a whole different light. And so in present day, when we look at this story of Abram and the, the human sacrifice, that's kind of like going back before this disruptive technology of Jesus, saying, why? why? It just doesn't make sense. Why would that happen? Okay, and we look back at history through this prism of, of Jesus. So this is an idea that I want you to take with you when, when you go out into culture, when you interact with people, is that through progressive revelation, God has started with human and human practice at one place, and he has layered onto that layer after layer of revelation. So now we're in a day and age where we just expect that people would care for their kids. Human sacrifice, by and large, does not exist, at least not that I know of currently in the earth. But sacrifice does. In places where people don't yet know of Jesus, they're still sacrificing animals for, for the purpose of appeasing gods. Someone gets sick. Grandma's about to die. They kill a chink- chicken, sp- sprinkle its blood. Okay, this is still happening, actually, in, in 2016. We've seen it uh, in our work overseas. And now that we've, been, we've been exposed to this disruptive technology, even a non-Christian has been affected by it. The ideas of, of universities, those have come out of this new revelation through Christ and the, the idea that we can understand our world and our university, university system. Many of them were founded by uh, by believers, people who wanted to explore this universe that God has created through science. Hospitals are founded by most of them. The history, if you look back at them, are founded by Christians who have been radically transformed and changed. And now people who have not even experienced Christ have been impacted by his impact in the world. So here we are in 2016, and we're looking back at stories in Hebrews chapter 11 of people who uh, were putting their faith in the promises of God, hoping for the revelation of Jesus. And now we're on the other side, and we're looking, when we look at Jesus, we're looking back at that. And so sometimes these stories in the Old Testament seem very fuzzy and very confusing and very difficult to wrap our minds around. We're going to zoom back out and wrap this up with a a point and some applications. Looking at verse 13 in Hebrews 11, we see that all these people, this is Moses and Abraham and Sarah, all the people listed, they still died believing what God had promised them. 
They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and they welcomed it. They wanted what was at the end of the journey because they, they knew that what God was doing was refreshing. It was new. It was transformational. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the point that we can take out of all of this is that us today, even though we've seen the revelation of Christ, uh, we haven't reached that heavenly homeland yet. And the point for, that I'm going to bring out of Hebrews chapter 11 is that like the heroes of faith that are listed in this chapter that considered themselves to be foreigners and nomads here on earth, that we are also, as followers of Christ, people pursuing this promise that God has given us and earnestly pursuing him, that we are also foreigners and nomads. We belong here because God has placed us here at this time in history. But we don't belong here. This isn't our final destination. And people in our society who don't know about this hope and this promise, they think they belong here. They think this is it. This is the end of the line. But we have hope in a future with God, a hope that allows us to rise above some of the trials and difficulties in our world today. So please remember that. I think we can all agree that we're just passing through. We're only here for 80, 90, maybe 100 years. It goes by quickly, as I'm finding out, and we're just passing through. So for application today, I'd like you to, first of all, examine it. Okay, read through this chapter this week and wrestle with the examples of the faith that are put forth and the idea that we too are foreigners and nomads in the world. If you're new to this idea, you can read through these, these, uh, these examples. Read through Genesis and the accounts of some of the people that are listed there and study it and just ask. Be asking God, is this, what is this? Examine it. Then I want you to live like it. If you have put your faith in Christ and you have adopted this eternal perspective, I want you to live like it. We're always storing up treasures. The question is, where are we storing them? Are we storing them up here on earth because this is the end of the line? Or are we storing them up in heaven by believing in God's promises and by acting them out in our lives? And the last thing I'd like you to do is to contextualize it. Just like God did as he was explaining himself to Abram, he entered into the cultural context and he made himself relevant to Abram. And that is our role as bearers of this image of Christ. The mantle has been passed to us. Now it is upon us to be relevant to the people around us, to find ways to communicate our hope that fit the cultural context. People are watching us all the time. They're watching what we live for and what we die for. So I want you to examine it, to live like it, and to contextualize it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time today that we can examine your word, that we can understand um, incrementally 
more of what you're doing in the world and what you're doing in us. We thank you that you have not kept yourself distant, but you have entered into human history and you have given us an image of you in the form of Jesus. You've given us an example in the way he lived his life and the things that he taught. I pray that you would give us the courage to stay connected to him and the wisdom and the ability to stay relevant to the people around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.